Hello and welcome to Pole Position, a podcast series from the Hoover Institution covering the 2016 election season. Pole Position is hosted by Hoover Research Fellow Bill Whalen, an expert in U.S. and California politics and elections. Hello, it's Thursday, November the 10th, and welcome to Poll Position, the Hoover Institution's ongoing look at the 2016 election, which, hard to believe, came to a surprising conclusion on Tuesday night. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow, and joining me today, Doug Rivers, Stanford University political scientist, Hoover Institution senior fellow, and founder and chief scientist for YouGov, the Palo Alto-based survey firm. Doug, here we were a week ago, laying out a different scenario that popped up on Tuesday night. We had Hillary Clinton winning the election. We had her winning a handful of battleground states that she needed to carry that Trump, we thought, would not. And we got surprised. Uh, yeah, I think the lesson is we shouldn't quit our day jobs and go into uh, uh, fortune telling. Um, yeah, so uh, the polls, uh, most of which showed a small but re- relatively consistent lead for Clinton. Mm-hmm. Um, overstated uh, how much vote she would get. Um, and on that, uh, they were wrong on average. Uh, I would say that the size of the error uh, depends on what the final vote split will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, first thing you have to remember is polls are estimates of votes. They right. aren't uh, predictions of who's going to win an election. That is something that the analyst does uh, from the poll estimate of the vote. Right. Um, and so the, uh, the outcome of this election is pretty clearly a Clinton win in the popular vote. Uh, right now she's leading by about two-tenths of a percent. Um, but most people don't seem to realize there are uh, probably on the order of four to five million votes outstanding. A lot of uh, them here in California. Yes. Uh, in California, um, if a, your absentee ballot is mailed uh, mm-hmm. on election day and is received within three days, it's right. still counted. Uh, there are over two million outstanding votes in California. Right, a lot in, a lot in Arizona and a lot in Michigan. That's why those states have not been called yet. Um, in California, uh, Clinton is going to uh, win that absentee vote by a substantial amount, which will mean that she will add, by my calculations, probably uh, nationally about a million votes. Uh, she's going to win California margin. by a wider margin than Obama carried it in 2012. Uh, and a big help that did for her. Um, <laughs> we understood going into the polls, and I think I uh, said on the podcast mm-hmm. that uh, there's about a uh, point and a half uh, bias, uh, right. one to one and a half point bias in the Electoral College. So if Clinton uh, won by one point, we thought that right. uh, she could well lose the Electoral College, and I think that's uh, what yeah. will happen in the Let, end. Let's, let's draw Not on that. that f- I predicted that. Let's draw on that for a minute because I think it's important for listeners to understand this, that polls are mathematics. Polls are statistic. Polls are a representation of data. Polls do not predict outcomes. I think this is a problem within the polling industry in that pollsters have become rock stars. They have made the transgression from actually being nerd numb crunchers, if you were, to now going on TV and offering their opinion on what's going to happen. It's not to single one person out, but it's the Nate Silver problem because Nate Silver from 538.com famously calls all 50 states in 2012. And so we think, well, this is pretty simple. The polls will tell us what's going to happen. I mention this because if you look at the polls going into election night, we had Hillary Clinton with a consistent lead nationally of about, what, two and a half, three, three and a half, four points, pick, pick your range. And you could argue that you could look at those polls and say that, wait a second, there's a little number to the side of that lead with a little plus or minus called margin of error. 
And that's what polls provide you, Doug. Polls give you a snapshot of what the two numbers look like, but they can move in one direction or the other, and they moved in one direction on election night. Yeah, so a little lesson on the margin of error. Mm -hmm. Uh, so what you see reported in most polls is approximately one over the square root of sample size. Mm -hmm. um, and what that means is uh, that if you have, for example, of uh, a sample of 900 to make the arithmetic easy, uh, square root of 900 is 30, um, so the margin of error is approximately one over 30, right. uh, or a little over 3%. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, that means that if you have a random sample with no selection bias, no problems, no weighting, no nothing, um, and it says that the race is 50-50, um, you would expect the candidate's vote to range between 47 and 53, mm -hmm. which incidentally translates into a lead uh, of plus 3 to minus 3, or a 6-point margin of error on the lead. Right. Um, so. Uh, the margin of error that's reported is on the percentage vote, not on the lead. You need to double it. Uh, so take every margin of error and double it when we're talking about leads, which is what people like to do. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, um, I looked, for example, in our final economist poll, which was a big sample, 3,600 uh, registered voters. This is the weekly YouGov economist sample. That, that's right. right. Uh, we had Clinton up by 3.7%, I believe, 38 mm -hmm. I forget the exact number. We reported a margin of error of 1.7%. So on the lead, that would be 3.4%. Mm -hmm. uh, so the margin of error on 3.8 would be from 0.4 to um, 7.2, if my arithmetic is right. She's going to win the popular vote by about half a point, right? Maybe a point. I think she's going to win by a point. Okay. Um, and so the result was within our margin of error. This so may sound like... No, in theory, in theory, you can say, we got this right. Yeah. We don't but. want... <laughs> first, we don't think being at the extreme edges of the margin of error is good. It's right. supposed to have a margin in right. it, uh, not to be... Um, uh, we try to get people not to interpret results that are outside the margin of error, but the fact is when they're around the border and so forth, people do. Now, we can start going state by state and offer this same defense. We can look at Florida, which was razor thin going into Election Day, about even if not a point in one direction. North Carolina, I think you were looking at North Carolina Election Night for CBS, weren't you? Yes. Uh, we can look at those two states and say, well, okay, they were razor thin and they broke Trump's way. But there were some troubling signs elsewhere. Wisconsin is a good example of this, Doug, where you had, I think you had at one point, you had Iowa was showing about a six-point lead for Trump, and I think he carried it by about 10. Seven, uh, large, large number. Yeah, large it was number. big lead. And then you had Wisconsin, which is not completely unlike Iowa in many, many respects, and it had uh, Clinton with a healthy lead, and she yeah. ends up losing it for the first time since 1984. So let's let's talk about what would have what would cause that scenario. All right, so... Um, our uh, final Florida poll uh, done on the weekend before the election showed a tie. This is the uh, CBS Battleground tracker? That's right. Okay. Uh, reported on Sunday morning on Face the Nation. Uh, we view that poll as being a satisfactory poll. We, we said this race is a toss-up. Uh, I think it was a toss-up. Uh, and, uh, and Trump managed to win it by a narrow amount. Right. Pennsylvania. Uh, we had a poll, our final poll there, which was released on... Uh, Sunday evening, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, had uh, Clinton up uh, by two points. Um, and in the end, uh, Trump was going to win Pennsylvania by about a point. Right. 
Um, so that was well within the range of outcomes that were consistent. Our earlier polls showed much larger leads in Pennsylvania, um, but our model, which uses all of our data nationally, was showing Pennsylvania close for a long time, mm -hmm. even though most of the other polling didn't. Right. Uh, so I don't think we did too badly, but the bulk of the polls were pretty far off of Pennsylvania. Uh, we and everybody else uh, were way off in Wisconsin. Wisconsin wasn't even considered a battleground state. Uh, we thought that the Senate race was pretty much a block mm -hmm. uh, for Feingold uh, and uh, that Clinton would win by a healthy margin. Um, and so this is a place where we were off substantially. Right. It can't be due to minority voters because there aren't enough minority uh, voters, uh, certainly Hispanic voters, to make a difference. Right. Um, and it's, uh, it appears that the error uh, was that we underestimated the rate at which uh, working class whites would uh, vote uh, for Trump. Right. Uh, one thing I love in the immediate aftermath of a presidential election is the losing side. Uh, people immediately engage in covering their own hides. And these are anonymous quotes about nobody listened to me, nobody got this right. And you're seeing this actually coming out of Wisconsin where you have Democrats anecdotally saying Russ Feingold was in trouble in the last two weeks of the election. He pleaded with help to the Clinton campaign. She was, by the way, I think, Doug, the first major party candidate since 1972 not to campaign in Wisconsin. So they all get up. But this is what I love about politics. And on the one hand, they blithely dismiss Wisconsin. Now you have people saying post facto, wait a second, we saw this coming and we begged for their help, but they wouldn't listen to us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> Which, by the way, if it were true, it would filter its way into the media, certainly. Uh, I'm sure it'll be there, and there are Trump people saying they always expected the win, even though most of them were uh, polishing their resumes <laughs> on the uh, Tuesday morning. It is. I'm curious about the mosaic of these battleground states, Doug, and that if you look at a state like Florida, I think she will end up getting more votes, Clinton will, than Obama did in 2012. But she didn't match Trump's increase over Romney's take in 2012. Yeah, so yeah. nationally, uh, Clinton will be down from uh, what Obama got. A lot, and I want to get to that in a second. But in Florida, so she yeah. does not she does not spike her vote the, as effectively as Trump does, so she fails to, to match him. Right. But in Pennsylvania, she's off Obama's numbers. Yes. So the lack of enthusiasm there. So this must have further complicated the, the, you guys in terms of trying to figure out what's going on in these races. Um, well, the exit polls, uh, contrary to some claims, uh, didn't seem to have uh, big problems on Tuesday night. Right. Um, they came out early with the usual and expected uh, overstatement of uh, Democratic vote, but mm -hmm. uh, all indications were Florida was going to be close. Right. Um, and as the night wore on, it uh, got more and more uh, what, away from her. What time of the night did you see things? I, I could tell you sitting here in California, I'm used to the 8 o'clock hour because at yeah. eight o'clock not only do the polls close in California but at eight o'clock you tend to get clarity in a state like Florida and it seems to be you know the race seems to be lining up at that point I kept waiting for the pivot in the election at eight o'clock I thought Florida numbers would tumble her way and then things would go back to form but at about eight fifteen, eight twenty out here on the west coast it seemed apparent that something something was afoot so we uh basically 15 minutes before the hour uh because we're not allowed to make any statements on air uh, about uh, the outcomes in places where voting is still open. Uh, go the round of states that were closing, and at that point, you know, it looked like it was in line. Uh, Clinton was ahead in the exit no poll. No states had shifted to that point. Right. Everything was going to form. Um, 
in Florida, you have a lot of vote because the panhandle votes till 8 p.m. And so we had um, uh, some places reporting. And we could see um, with the exit poll, there's a thing called within precinct error. That is that after the polls close, they go back and get the vote counts for the precinct and compare them to what people told the interviewers. Uh, so you have an idea of how much error there was. Um, and uh, it was large, though not nearly as large as uh, 2008. Uh, so we thought we had a grasp at that point. Um, so after 8 o'clock, I got some food, um, walked around, and then I started looking at a few of the states that uh, weren't my states. Uh, and that was uh, Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. And I went, oh my God, um, and uh, you know, took this up with the rest of the decision team. Um, and uh, at that point, it was still what's called second call data. So it's right. uh, the, the afternoon interviews are coming in, and it's not the final call. And things can change between second and third call. Uh, so we were looking uh, at that point, and uh, I knew at that point it was a was a problem. I, I told one of my colleagues, time to panic. That's uh, when you call your broker. That's it, the confluence on election. <laughs> no, I'm not allowed to call my broker. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> tempting as it might be. Uh, that was one of the interesting confluence of election night in which mm -hmm. you see after the uh, 11 o'clock hour on the mm -hmm. East Coast in which all of a sudden the, um, the talk changes a little bit. You see the They future. were slow to change the right. narrative, but you, we knew right. at 9 o'clock. You start to see the futures market. Uh, yeah. move, and you see the little tracker on the New York Times start to sway as well. Yeah, they so did a great job on that. So something's afoot on that. Uh, you mentioned the national numbers. So Hillary Clinton, by the time the votes are counted in, she's going to be in the neighborhood of what, Doug, about 60 million votes? Yes. Donald Trump will be maybe a little shy of 60 million or close to 60 million? Uh, I think he'll probably uh, go over 60 by the time all the votes count. Okay. That's an important number in presidential politics because the Republicans have struggled to crack 60 million and beyond. Barack Obama's first elected in 2008 and he gets about 69 million votes. He comes back in 2012 and he's reelected. He loses popular votes, which is rare for an incumbent president. Usually you build on what you did the first time. He drops down to 65. Mitt Romney cannot climb. Mitt Romney, I believe, is in the about s close to 61 million, I believe. Yeah, Trump will be below where Romney was. Right. So part of the Republican conversation comes. And incidentally, right. given the population grows, you should be growing your vote every election. Correct. If you look at Hillary's vote, it's parallel to what John Kerry's was in 2004 at this point. Right. So part of the Republican conversation, Doug, the so-called autopsy, the talk about reaching out to minorities, broadening the tent, blah, 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 was how are we going to crack 60 million and beyond get towards 65 million. It turns out that Donald Trump turned the trick without with barely getting to 60 million. But the question at this hour is not Donald Trump getting the votes he did. It's why did she fail to get about five to six million fewer votes than Barack Obama? Yeah, so there, um, well, first on Trump, I mean, he did find another mother load of votes right. uh, rather than getting minorities, which was going to always be a tough proposition for Republicans. Um, he went after uh, the white working class. But his, but his Hispanic numbers are about 30% nationally, yeah. I believe, so, which, which is a surprise. From what I can tell at the moment, and again, this is all provisional, yeah. um, there are two possibilities for Clinton. Mm -hmm. uh, one is she failed to, uh, to meet her targets on turnout for these groups. And so there are various reports that black turnout was lagging 
uh, in the early vote. Uh, mm -hmm. We don't yet know what black turnout was, and anybody who tells you what it is based on the exit poll is relying on shaky data. Mm -hmm. um, there was, there were good numbers on Latino turnout that it apparently did go up. Right. Uh, so I don't think it was a turnout story of them missing their turnout numbers. Uh, it may be a turnout story in that Trump did better on turnout than he should have with no ground game. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the more plausible thing that happened was that Clinton missed her vote split numbers on both blacks and especially Hispanics. Um, you know, Trump ran a campaign that was openly hostile to Hispanics. Um, and, you know, so the thought was, wow, Clinton's going to do much better among Hispanics than Obama did. You know, right. uh, it, I said, I think on earlier version of this podcast, it wouldn't surprise me that she got 80%. Uh, in fact, uh, she's at around uh, 70 or even a little below. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there was one clue to that early on in a survey that Pew did where they broke out Hispanics by English dominant and Spanish dominant. So you ask people, do you, most of the time, do you speak English or Spanish or, you know, split equally? Um, and the English dominant... Uh, Hispanics were about 60-40 uh, uh, Clinton over Trump. Um, and so we need that data to break it down, and we don't really have it yet. Um, there, uh, so uh, I think that may explain it. And the other thing is Obama obviously generated huge enthusiasm among blacks. He got, you know, north of 95% of right. the black vote. Right. And it looks like um, Clinton is, you know, she probably five points thing, below that. But it's a quantity argument. She's not yeah. getting enough of the vote. So that's going to cost her ultimately yeah. North Carolina, Florida, and Michigan, right? Yeah. That's, uh, that's the election. Doing a little better on turnout, a little better right. on minority vote, and a little less badly on the white working class vote. Uh, but, of course, she picked up with the... Uh, you know, the white middle class, the college-educated whites. So Barack Obama has been involved in five national elections now. Twice he has been on the ticket as a presidential mm -hmm. nominee, and three other times he ran trying to make the election in part a referendum on himself. Vote for this senator, vote for this governor, because they support me, they're with me. And in 2016, Doug, he went out and talked about Hillary Clinton as being his legacy. And what we have seen is that the two times that Barack Obama was on the ballot, it works wonderfully for him. Democrats turn out in enormous numbers, and he's swept back into office. And the three times, Doug, that he has tried to um, sprinkle the pixie dust on other Democrats, it doesn't fail. Twice his party got pounded very hard in midterms, and on Tuesday night, Mrs. Clinton didn't get the Obama coalition and the numbers she needed. So just, I know this is not exactly a mathematical pollster question, but just what's your hunch as to why it's not transferable? Well, I'm not sure uh, anyone has, uh, any president's been terribly successful in that. Right. You know, Franklin Roosevelt uh, uh, in uh, 1938 famously uh, tried to get rid of some recalcitrant Democrats, right. and it didn't go anywhere, and, and Ronald Reagan wasn't terribly successful in yeah. uh, his uh, midterms. Uh, interesting thing is Donald Trump, who is really willing to go after members of his own party, if the Republican Party is his, which I guess it is now, um, uh, you know, did seem to have, um, uh, you know, some, certainly the ability to scare uh, incumbents to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of whom clearly did not want him to be elected president. Right. 
Um, and uh, we see that, uh, it, you know, Kelly Ayotte uh, did end up losing very narrowly in New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. um, and that certainly is going to be blamed on uh, her uh, unwillingness to support Trump, fairly or unfairly. Uh, also, uh, she did make the gaffe about saying that she viewed Trump as a role model, and that she kept talking about that situation yeah. afterwards. So she sort of dug a, a deep hole for herself. You mentioned the Senate. So was Feingold Johnson in Wisconsin the, the biggest surprise? Yeah, I think that was the biggest one of the night. Um, but then uh, Republicans won essentially uh, uh, the close races, except for New Hampshire. Yeah, this was interesting. The class of 2010, which... Republicans who came into that first right. midterm. We didn't see the volatility we would have expected, thinking six years later, since they rode in on midterm crest, they're going to have pushed out in a, in a presidential crest. The class of 2010 did pretty well on Tuesday night. Yes, and there's uh, the map in uh, 2018 is very tough for Democrats. So mm -hmm. uh, unless there's a wave uh, in 2018, I think we are looking for another four years of Mitch McConnell as majority leader, so let's who see. did play this extremely artfully, I'd say. Uh, he did uh, in many ways, and I think the numbers in 2018 are 25 Democrats and eight Republicans, and gosh, there are Democrats running in West Virginia and North Dakota and Indiana, and you know, there's some pretty yeah. pretty easy targets out there for Republicans to pick off. Depending, yeah, depending, two years is a long time in Depending politics. what President Trump does. Try saying that three times, President Trump. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Still hard to process, isn't it? Uh, have you looked at all the California results, Doug? No. I, <laughs> I hate to tell you, by the time California was in, we were dealing with uh, <laughs> a bunch of states which were uh, uh, in doubt. So it's a curious uh, set of results in this. And as I mentioned, she's going to win by a wider margin than Obama did over right. Romney. But that's Trump rolling in at about 30 4% right now and probably sinking as more votes get counted around the state. But you go down ticket, Doug, and despite a incredibly weak person at the top of the ticket, the three Republicans in the toss-up districts, they all survive. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, we've talked a bit about the House, mm -hmm. and at one point Democrats thought they could win 20-plus seats. Mm -hmm. uh, by uh, a week ago, that was clearly not going to happen. And, uh, you know, I think so one of the big stories was Republicans only lost, was it, eight seats in the, in the House. Yeah. Um, and so uh, Trump gets a uh, majority in both houses of Congress, uh, which gives them some freedom. Um, if, if the Democrats had won the Senate, for example, they could have set up the uh, permanent uh, committee to investigate Donald Trump, which I suspect <laughs> there will be plenty of pickings out there. One of which apparently cropped up this morning as the Russians said that they'd had contacts with the Trump campaign. Well, here we go. Another fun four years in American politics. I'd be remiss not to ask you because you're going to get this question in every speech you give over the next year. Donald Trump, Brexit. Well, they, <laughs> both uh, I know, Brexit I, I and Donald Trump. I know you need Trump. time to crunch some numbers and look at this yeah. stuff, but it's the easy, obvious thing to go to here that as Britain went, so too did America. Um, yes, and in both cases, the polls underestimated the support uh, right. for it. And so um, I, I think there's probably a – certainly in terms of the sociology of the support for, for both is very similar. Um, what's interesting is uh, – were the polling problems, uh, did they have a common route? Mm -hmm. I don't know yet. But in Brexit, you're talking about national identity. 
And I'm not sure that Donald Trump is a conversation about national identity as he is maybe maybe a backlash against the political system. Well, Brexit was very much that too. Was it too? Um, you know, the unelected bureaucrats in Brussels, uh, the elites in London uh, who are doing very well in the finance industry. Um, you know, Brexit was essentially voted in um, by uh, rural England uh, that looks very much like uh, the Trump coalition. Mm -hmm. Um, and the rejection and the aggressive rejection of, uh, you know, the elite uh, consensus uh, shocked uh, people in London the same way it's shocking uh, uh, right. people in the academy and on the coast. Uh, so as the elites are being rejected, uh, outfits like CBS News are doing exit polls of voters. And they're asking voters all sorts of questions. They're asking them questions about temperament and leadership and change. And correct me if I'm wrong, but change comes across as a very strong component in exit voters' minds. And this might yeah. be where the Clinton campaign made a boo-boo because they talked a lot about Donald Trump's temperament. And this is maybe where Hillary Clinton, Doug, just had to struggle at all times in this campaign. Voters wanted change. They wanted something different. If it wasn't Bernie Sanders, it was Donald Trump. And yeah. she just could not be the candidate of change. Well, I think they made an explicit uh, strategic decision that they were going to run this campaign against Trump and paint him as a big risk, and he cooperated, uh, and they came very close. Mm -hmm. um, but um, she did not have a good change message. Uh, she was the wrong candidate for that. Um, the mistake that I think people like us made is right. you know, there are all these stories about Trump that are just you know, outrageous um, and disqualify him. Right. And um, people weren't looking for somebody to be a caretaker of what exists to make marginal changes. They wanted to reject the whole thing. And in that case, you're willing to take a messenger who, uh, who has some obvious flaws. Okay. Final question. I'll let you go so you can go back to riding in San Francisco, whatever you're doing since the election, Doug. But uh, part of the pushback in Clinton world is you now hear Bill Clinton complaining to people that Hillary did not run a sufficient message-driven campaign, that instead her people were much too data-driven. <laughs> well, hindsight being 2020, but well, modern campaigns you have to run with data. Data, right? Um, that uh, in her case, uh, there wasn't a message campaign to run. Um, I was, uh, Saturday Night Live did a sort of pre-election wrap up because usually it's on too late for me to watch. Um, but uh, there was a, a great skit where uh, uh, Clinton is essentially delivering the messages of Sanders. Um, and and she it, it changes into Bernie Sanders as she goes along, right? Yeah. 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 So she tried to adopt the Sanders message, and that didn't work. Right. So the, if she wanted to run a message campaign, it should have been a centrist Democratic campaign. I will give you back the uh, Clinton administration of the 1990s. Right. We will comp we will, which they did after 1994, compromise with Republicans in Congress because mm -hmm. uh, we're going to have to deal with a Republican majority. Um, and in the end, uh, you know, I think they made the decision that didn't poll very well and wouldn't have sold. Right. This is maybe the final irony in the election in that Donald Trump won the election because he pierced the vaunted blue wall. 
those 18 states that have been voting Democratic since 1992, and Bill Clinton brought many of them into the Democratic column and kept them there, and she could not hold them. And maybe that's the final diagnosis. She couldn't hold them because she couldn't couldn't communicate to them the way that her husband did. Well, so the Democrats are going to have a postmortem after this election, right. and it's going to be all about the white working class. Right. And on one side, it's going to be Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and so forth. It says we need to go left. Mm -hmm. If we want to be do populism, we're going to do left-wing populism. Um, I have my doubts about whether that'll work, um, but I think that's what you're going to see the Democrats inferring from the loss in this election. Uh, it's a great thing about politics. If we had been sitting here a day before the election, we would have been talking about the come to Jesus meeting the Republicans need to have to have after the election. They still have to have a conversation about what exactly the Republican Party is, though, because it may not be a conservative party anymore. But now we're going to have to have a conversation about what it is to be a Democrat in 2017. That's right. So I guess we can continue discussing this for a while. And you could do all kinds of polling on it if you want. <laughs> I think I will. Doug, thanks for coming by. Get some rest. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to Poll Position, a Hoover Institution podcast. For more information about the Hoover Institution, please visit our website. That's www.hoover.org. And while you're there, I encourage you to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report. It keeps you updated on Hoover Fellows in the news, their studies, analyses, and commentary arriving in your inbox every business day. You can also find us on Twitter, and our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. On behalf of my colleague, Doug Rivers, thanks for sitting in with us today. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more research by our fellows on the 2016 election, please visit hoover.org slash decision 2016. For more podcasts from Hoover, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.